Welcome to Espresso Talks, your source for interviews with a wide range of unique people from diverse backgrounds around the world. I'm your host, Anthony T. Eaton. Valerie and Ellen, so good to see you again. I appreciate you making some more time for us to sit down and have another Espresso Talk. Of course. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. You're very welcome. So the last time that we sat down, we were talking about your first book, Nurses on the Inside, Stories of the HIV and AIDS Epidemic in New York. It was a great conversation and uh, we got a lot of great feedback from that. So I'm excited here to talk about your new book, Beyond the Mask. I have to ask the question, were you all working on this book when we talked the first time? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. When, we, no, we were done. We It was written. It, oh, we was were it? Just, yeah, we were just uh, working on getting it published. Okay. Uh, yeah, because we spoke in uh, December. We spoke on World AIDS Day. Yes. Oh, that's right. So the book was already done. That's great. I know we talked about the parallels between what was going on with the coronavirus pandemic and the HIV pandemic. So I think it's a great kind of segue for this new book. And I really love the way you set the story up in the beginning. You know, talk a little bit about how you two kind of crafted that and decided what the format and direction was going to be. Because I know it's because obviously it's based in what has really gone on, but it's also a fictional work. I'm going to say that, you know, probably 50% is fiction. Uh, all, I mean, all of it is based on real stories. And out of the six main characters, three are actually real people. And those backstories are true. The other three main characters are compilations of people that we have worked with over the years. And then we put the stories of different nurses that we interviewed throughout the country. I mean, mostly I got these people on Facebook because there was a huge Facebook page about COVID healthcare providers and nurses especially were venting like these lengthy like soliloquies about what was going on in their hospital. So there was Maryland, Nevada, Philadelphia, Texas, of course, New York. And so those stories came together from bits of what these people actually experienced. My question was to ask about character development and, you know, (laughs) were these real individuals or were they kind of a compilation of people that you had encountered? That opening scene was something that I wanted to do to try to give people an idea about how the virus might spread amongst regular people and also to set up a little anxiety because... I'm sort of hoping that that's what it did. It did, absolutely. When I read that, I was Mm -hmm. in the moment. Because I don't think we think about those things of how Mm -hmm. disease is spread and how germs work and what we are doing as individuals in terms of spreading disease, whether it's this disease or some other disease. I know I argue with myself all all the time about germs. I'm sort of very, (laughs) I think about germs all the time. And then I say, well... 
you know, exposure to germs can lead to a robust immune system. And then we get something like this where, you know, hand washing becomes critical and not sharing the air becomes critical and, you know, droplet nuclei become super critical. And I waffle back and forth between those two ideas. But for the book, I wanted to give people the idea that, you know, here are regular people and it could happen to anybody. Unbeknownst to us that we're already infected with something and we're spreading it to other people through just our regular social behaviors. I was in right. Home Depot the other day and now, of course, fewer and fewer people are wearing masks and somebody down the aisle, certainly more than six feet away from me, they sneezed and they didn't cover their mouth. And so I made an immediate dash in a different direction because I'm like, okay, we've just gone through this and everybody knows, and, and we should know anyway, right? Because we talk about these things during the flu season. Exactly. And Cough hygiene, sneeze hygiene. We talk about it all the time, but and apparently it, nobody's listening. <laughs> it really grossed me out. And yeah, I, I took an immediate left. Mm -hmm. Happily, it's yeah. allergy season. So with any luck at all, that's all it was. In our first interview, we did talk about the parallels, but there's also a lot of differences with what we've seen in this pandemic, especially, you know, Ellen, to what you were talking about in terms of today we have all of this social media and nurses venting. I think the public had much more access to what our healthcare providers were going through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, they, they did. I mean, all you had to do was turn on the nightly news, you know, in New York, when there was a period of time when people were clapping out their windows for heroes, that came a little later. I think what we tried to portray in the beginning chapters of the book were the calm before the storm. I guess we, in, in some effect, had the calm before the storm with the HIV epidemic. But here, I think it was a little bit more paralyzing as healthcare workers began to notice things, like odd things. PPE being all of a sudden locked up, which it, which it was, and then right. being rationed and so on. But if you watch the news, all, all you saw during 2020 was like the numbers almost, you know, how many millions, thousands and tens of thousands of people died and then we're in the millions and how many people infected. It was almost like watching the election, you know, when they saw how many electoral votes went to each candidate and so on or any election. And it was just a series of numbers of deaths. It was so, it was so startling. And in some ways, but I also feel like it was numbing for many people. I think many people started to look at it like they look at the election and started writing it off. And you can't comprehend that amount of death unless you actually see it in person, which healthcare workers were doing. But the rest of the world was not. I would agree with that. And I think the difference between the two pandemics is HIV, the AIDS epidemic, really kind of came on slow. There was a runway to massive numbers as opposed to this. It came on very, very quickly. It mm -hmm. was just a matter of a couple or even a few months before we yeah. were seeing these numbers that we'd never seen since maybe the great flu epidemic of, you know, 
1918. <laughs> 1918, yes. So I also think there were a couple of other really important differences between these two pandemics. And the first is that the coronavirus has the potential to infect anybody and everybody. And it is basically spread by droplet nuclei. So it's, you know, you can say you can get it from the air, if you will. It's not what we call airborne, but it is spread in the air. So that's one big difference. The other is that it was not confined to a specific group, which in many ways, HIV was confined to a cluster of groups of people who were considered disposable by the rest of society. And that's a really important distinction, I think, between COVID and HIV is that nobody's going to say that the people who got COVID were disposable, whereas many people back in the day were thinking that gay men and women who were doing sex work were completely disposable, and PSPS are still considered disposable. So either they were get-out-of-my-emergency-room types or they were citizens, and it was just kind of a, a stark and revolting way to divide people. I mean, either you believe people are worth something or you don't. And apparently lots of people think that some people are disposable. And so this whole thing about humans being worthwhile only applies to some people. And that's a real stark thing. That's a real stark difference. Valerie and I tried not to get very political in this book, but we, we did start to see that there were a lot of minority people that were considered disposable, that did not have access to care, access to education, access to testing. But also, this is a long-term problem. This is not something that happened because of COVID. COVID invaded these communities because of this lack of education, this ignoring issues of educating children so that they know anything about science at all, so that they know anything about hygiene or how to keep house or, you know, how to run anything. I think that this is a real long-term, sh shows off a long-term disadvantage to allowing the schools to just go to hell in a handcart, which in many neighborhoods they have done. Not just in New York, my God, no, all over the country. Right, and they, they want to limit education rather than enhance education. We have known for a long time that there is a lack of access to even basic preventative health care for people who are minorities or poor. I think this really did shine a big spotlight on the haves and have-nots. It did. The people who had a public platform or who were recognizable, who came down with coronavirus they had the means to get the best care possible where the Hispanic woman who works as a maid in the hotel, she just didn't have that. It just wasn't. Right. Amazing. Because she makes too much money for Medicaid. So she doesn't have any health insurance at all because they only let her work 35 hours a week, which isn't a full work week. So it's just every time you look at this, they're cutting people off at the pockets and it is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Also, I think it highlighted a difference in our response. We talked about this a little bit before. It was immediately apparent that from a medical standpoint, and this was due obviously to that whole 
point that you raised, Ellen and, and Valerie, about people being disposable, all of the resources that were thrown at this. Even though initially it was kind of downplayed in our country, once it was evident that this is a big thing and we need to do something, resources were available. Big resources, huge resources, all we sponsored had, by your tax dollars at work. Yes. And we had never seen that, I don't think. I can't remember anything like this ever happening before. Nor can I, and I've been working in research for a long time. We're entering a new phase. Again, we're not seeing as many people wear masks. We've also seen a different kind of politicization of this compared to the HIV pandemic obviously was political, but for different reasons. How do you think this changes the landscape as we go forward? Because we know this isn't the last pandemic that is ever going to hit. Maybe it is in our lifetime, hopefully, but history repeats itself. The country right now is just so polarized. And now many people are not listening to the science. It's become about their right to their body, right to dictate care, what they want for their children or what they want for themselves and not caring about anybody else. When you when you saw on the news or on uh, any one of the social medias, like how many people were thrown off planes for not wearing masks, you know, fights. Of course, everybody had a cell phone. So everything that was happening was always recorded. You know, somebody was stalling the plane because they wouldn't wear a mask because it was their right to choose. So their right to choose is certainly important, but a woman's right to choose Throw right. that out the window. Yeah, we're very contradictory in yeah. our approach to many things. And also, please note that anybody who actually did get COVID, who had private insurance, or let's just say who happened to be a famous person, they were the first ones to get the monoclonal antibodies and all the access to the new drugs and all of that, even though they were busy out of one side of their mouth saying, don't wear a mask and, you know, masks are just theater and all of that you know, as soon as they get sick, then they want the best of the best. So I'm, you know, very resentful of that because I think if people want to downplay science to their constituents, their political constituents, then they ought to make an agreement not to take antibiotics the next time they get a urinary tract infection, because that's based in science. And if you want to downplay science and call scientists idiots and make fun of Tony Fauci, then maybe you shouldn't take an antibiotic next time you get sick and let's see how that goes. That's what I would like to say to them. We have become very individualistic as opposed to tribal, if you will, the village taking care of the village. Now it's one man or woman for themselves and you're kind of on your own. So how has the book been received since it came out? the people that we know that have read it have actually enjoyed it and and there were some really great comments I don't know if you read the Amazon reviews on the book there were some really great comments about utilizing the fictional narratives to get a point across we thought for a while there that we might get you know kind of crucified for having a book that's fiction when I was querying for agents before I decided to basically self-publish, it's published by Fulton Books, but it's actually self-published by us. When I was querying for agents, 
people were very interested in the manuscript, but only if we decided to make this book nonfiction. Yeah, I, I had a conversation with an agent that went on for days via email, actually two different agents who were really interested, but saying, why can't this be nonfiction? And I said, because often the, the people that we spoke with who told us the stories and who told us the struggles in the nursing community, they did not want to be identified by name or state or hospital Man. they work. We saw early on nurses getting fired for speaking up about lack of PPE, wanting to use hospital scrubs instead of their own. So there was just no way. Nobody, nobody in 2020 was going to go on record at all to, to be outspoken about what was going on. There's a difference between your first book and this book, there was the relevancy, the timeliness, and at the point you wrote the book, there wasn't the risk that was involved to people losing their job because they were speaking up, because your big focus was really on things that had happened and some time had passed, where, to your point, this was going on well, still is going on. I, I know some nurses who they lost their job for various reasons. And that was very disappointing to me because I knew what good nurses they were. When we spoke about, you know, the different patients that we mentioned in the book, a lot of those scenarios were snippets of real scenarios. You know, where the fiction comes in was sometimes we had to have add the backstory to the patient. The nurses did not know, they knew what happened to the patient during their hospitalization, but they didn't know their family and et cetera. So that's where the fiction came in. But the patients themselves were real people that were taken care of by different healthcare workers over the amount of time that we spent interviewing. I have a whole notepad of notes from different people. I really um, like that intertwining of the fiction and nonfiction. I think you did an excellent job in blending the two. So, you know, I really want to ask about from the fiction point of it, you know, did you run into any challenges of building that backstory or did it come very easy? How did the two of you kind of work on that together? I, you know what? I think it honestly came very easy. I mean, I credit Val with most of the backstory. I, I tend to write dialogue when I write as if I'm actually speaking it. So like some of those the nurses like in the ICU, Sandy, Maureen, uh, Fran, like I wrote dialogue as if I was actually speaking it. And then Valerie would handle a lot of the, what we call embroidery. She would, I would always email her and say, this needs a little embroidery. You know, Valerie is very descriptive about the, the environment, the rooms, the places people lived, you know. And my focus was more on getting each chapter to end with a chilling revelation you know yeah, she liked the cliffhanger part the cliffhanger, <laughs> yes i i I knew, I knew this needed to end each chapter needed to end with a cliffhanger val would just sort of take it from there that's the way the book starts it's very descriptive of the environment that was that's the hair the hair salon at bergdorf goodman's yes. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so that's a place I used to go to get my hair done. Also, all of the characters that for whom I did the backstories are either compilations of stories my patients have told me or things that I know about people I've worked with. My friend Joanne is in there. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend Darlene who's in there, even though only her name is in there. That was not really her son. And uh, <laughs> But Darlene and Lloyd are real people, and I just sort of wanted to acknowledge them by putting them in the book, but not as who they really are. So a lot of that stuff came from people I know, and I just tweaked it so it would not be recognizable as their particular story. Right. Kind of the and, old and, adage of write what you know. That's what I've always been taught. So <laughs> yeah. I hope I did it. You did. Um, you did an excellent job. I have the great privilege of having read your first book and now this one. Obviously, you're very skilled in your you know, other <laughs> careers, but as writers, I hope you write more books for sure. <laughs> There was never supposed to be another book after Nurses. And then I don't, you know, it just occurred to me that nobody's going to remember the very beginnings of this pandemic. Nobody's going to remember. I remember mm -hmm. saying to Val, we have to memorialize this. As I was hearing, I was hearing a lot from my daughter, who was a PA in the emergency room. Some of those stories are hers. And hearing everything. And then I said, oh my God, I have to reach out to some of my colleagues who are still in the ICU. Uh, where I used to work and I did and they talked to me and they told me these things that were happening and they would send me pictures of them where they went to a fishing store and were wearing those overalls that you wear to go into the water to fish and God. you know all this gear that they they had to make and put together every single thing we were taught as nurses about one mask per patient per time. You go in the room, you wear a mask, you wear gloves, you come out to discard everything, wash your hands, hand hygiene. Next time you go in, new mask, new gloves, new gown. You know, everything we learned about infection control was out the window. Right, then, because, you know, you think that only the inside of the mask is dirty? I'm sorry, the outside of the mask is really dirty because yes. you've been filtering stuff through that mask. So the outside of the mask is dirty. Do you think we learned anything about this whole being prepared? Because I don't think we realized in the beginning that we were going to have all of these shortages. So many things have been affected, right? Americans, by and large, thought this couldn't happen to them. They, they thought this was a third world problem. They said Ebola, oh, well, it only happens in Africa. What's Africa? It's just doesn't count. Or the original SARS, that happened in China. That doesn't count. Those people aren't Americans. But this mm -hmm. really brought people up sharply and showed where our deficiencies are, that we were never ready for this. I really do hope that there's money being given to the public health services to sort of ramp that up for the next time, because I'm sorry to report, I think there will be a next time and it will be in our lifetime. So... You know, that's the way things are going. What is your hope for readers to take away from the book overall? Just as in the first book, there's a, several things. Number one is to recognize and memorialize who we lost. You know, we did lose nurses. The, the story about Mo was actually a nurse that I did know. I, I think the early 
statistics of, of healthcare workers that got infected and died, I think we need to memorialize. I think we need to memorialize that hospitals were not prepared. The country was not prepared for this. You know, I know that there was no pandemic team, emergency team that was assembled quickly to combat or to quell this virus in any way. And we just watched the numbers go up and we watched the healthcare workers be totally startled by how quickly things changed, how quickly their place of employment switched over. You know, an orthopedic unit became a COVID unit. I, a recovery room of, you know, I didn't mention that one. We, just, we chose to do emergency room critical care in an orthopedic unit, but that really happened. I mean, uh, recovery room stopped, surgery stopped. And the recovery ORs, became, every, all 250 ORs in the hospital yeah. where I work became COVID units. I 250 mean, rooms, that's yes. a huge amount. And then there became tents, you know, one tent right. and two tents. tents. And then yeah. people were in conference rooms. They made the auditoriums in facilities, the belongings that weren't picked up, the refrigerated trucks that had to be brought in. Now for some, it may be a distant memory. I don't believe for a minute we should forget this. And I would and totally agree with you on that. I think that it's too easy to forget. For me, I'm so glad that you wrote the book. It's an excellent book. I'm going to put information out on how individuals can get the book, leave their review for you, because I think that it's important. It makes us think, and hopefully we can keep a narrative going that isn't polarizing about this and really is a call to action. I hope it inspires that somebody who reads it also maybe to become a nurse. Mm -hmm. I would yes. like it if people would realize that it's an honorable and interesting profession. It is. And I do think that we as a society probably now have a greater appreciation. I know I do for those who are on the front lines of healthcare. Yeah. I think so too. Ellen and Valerie, I so appreciate again our having the opportunity to sit down. Yes. and talk about your book. And again, I do hope there are more books because I think you are very talented in telling the story and your background in healthcare. And there's lots of stories I think that can be told about different aspects of the healthcare industry. And you would certainly be the best two to do that. Thank, Thank you. you. You're welcome. Ellen and Valerie's book, Beyond the Bats, is available on Amazon.com.